And of course, you can always support without worrying about the tax deduction. That's something that ties up there. But yeah. Sorry, I forgot to say, um, I'm going to be sending out prayer updates on email. So if I could get your email address, I can send you out prayer updates and get prayer requests from you and be praying for you also. So thank you. Oh, I can circulate that if you like. Yeah. They probably won't magically get on there if you don't. Oh, <laughs> Go ahead. So circulate that and you can um, put your email address down if you want to have updates. I think we have a few folks visiting in the class for the first time. Anybody want to? Sandy, you want to? Um, I have my sister here in Richmond, in Minnesota, and then a friend, Darlene um, Franz, who, um, they're both farmer, farmer ladies. And, uh, <laughs> so anyway, we warm their toes up here, so, or back here in California, so it's been like below zero. They've hit below back there for a few days, so. And lots of snow. Where in Minnesota? Where in Minnesota? Uh, Gaylord. Gaylord, Minnesota, west of Minneapolis, St. Paul, about an hour's drive. And, um, and uh, I would say I might add that Darlene, to his mother of 10 children, <laughs> grandmother of 27, <laughs> on the way to the airport, she stopped at the hospital to see number 27, who's two hours old. How <laughs> precious. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> Sorry, we couldn't give you a little bit more warm weather here. I was, why am I apologizing for the weather? I like it, but uh, it's so great to have you. Jack and Sandy are sort of my kickstart to the class every week, especially Jack. So it's great to have you. Anybody else first time? And uh, Robin and Mum, good to see you this morning. Anybody feeling anonymous? Just want a little bit of my ego boost. Okay, we're. Um, Next week, going to start. Bill's going to start us off in Ephesians, and Lambert today is wrapping up uh, the prophet Micah. John Anaker, however, is uh, stepping in with a clipboard, and that ensures that we have uh, sufficient carbohydrates for January. So. <laughs> yes, it gives that team copy something to do. Uh, boy, we have an abundance of goodies this morning. That was great, so thank you to all of you who provided that. We'll circulate the clipboard. I'll start with Brenda there, and we'll, we'll just pass it back through. And uh, then when it gets to the end, I'll bring it up front, and uh, we'll pass it through this side. So uh, as long as it doesn't pass over the aisle, we'll be in good shape. Thanks. <laughs> okay, thanks. Lambert, thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here. I've been uh, pleasantly surprised at uh, learning uh, Micah, seeing what Micah has to say. It's really quite an amazing little short prophet. And today we're at the last chapter, which is also a very good chapter. Uh, you may uh, may have wondered what the prophets were like as uh, individuals in the Old Testament. Were they d- detached, uh, aloof, uh, remote? Uh, were they professionally trained? Uh, did they have a big support base? Did they have a retirement uh, package uh, and so that they could say their message and then live happily ever after in comfort and luxury? Uh, no. <laughs> They're generally, the prophets are generally very ordinary people, uh, and uh, they are generally uh, very tender hearted and very sensitive to 
to what's going on in the country. You remember that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he lived through the destruction of Jerusalem and wept over Jerusalem, much as Jesus, uh, 700 years later, would weep over Jerusalem when he entered on Palm Sunday. Um, uh, the the uh, prophets in general felt the hurt and pain of their people keenly and took it personally and lived as if the sin of the nation was their personal sin and their personal responsibility. And Mike is like that, and he, he gives us a little personal glimpse into his life at the beginning of chapter 7. Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first fruit which my soul desires. You remember that in Israel, the provision of the law of Moses was that when you harvested your fields or uh, your crops, you always left something behind for the poor, whether it was fruit or whether it was grain, and the poor depended on that, the gleanings. Remember Ruth, story of Ruth. And so uh, um, Micah says, I feel like a man who's desperately hungry, and I go into the orchard after the main harvest and there's not a single bit of fruit left there is no no gleanings have been left for me I'm destitute now he's not talking about literal food he's really talking about fellowship with like minded righteous men he finds himself alone in a land of very ungodly behavior and he says that in verse 2 the faithful or the loyal man has perished from the earth. I can't find anybody around here who's reliable, who de- who's dependable, who keeps his promises, who I can count on. That's certainly partly true in our culture today. You think about the, how solemn a marriage vow is and how serious it is before God and family and church and how uh, when a married couple gets up and, and, and takes those vows... They should be solemn and binding and taken very, very seriously. But today, well, some people do. Yeah. The word that they use there is hesed. Hesed. Yeah, we are going to get the word hesed in here about three times. That's that wonderful word that's sometimes translated loving kindness uh, and or loyal love. Uh, and it's a, a beautiful word in, in, the, in the Old Testament. Um the faithful man has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among men they all lie await uh, they lie in wait with blood for blood uh, he's talking to Israel he's not talking about the Gentile nations Israel is a nation with a covenant relationship with God so he's talking to God's people uh, he finds the conditions in Israel uh, very discouraging and very depressing for him uh, he goes on to describe the situation. He says, "Every man hunts his brother with a net. Every every man seems to be out to trap his own friends, his own brother, to betray, to uh, uh, take advantage of, uh, that they may do successfully successfully do evil with both hands." What do you suppose that means? Successfully do evil with both hands. Constantly, uh, in every way you can, um, totally untrustworthy, betraying your own brother, your own friend, 
And then he talks about the kind of conspiracies he's going on in high places in the government and and in the courts and among the rich people. It's like they're all working together in a, a kind of a conspiracy. He says that the prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe and the great man, rich man, utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. I think the rich guy wants something to happen that would better his position and he can easily go to the leader and have a new law passed or have a special dispensation granted and, or, and, or he can go to court and a little money under the table will get the judge to rule favorably for him. And so when you take these three classes of the rich and the princes and the judges, they're all corrupt and they're all working together self-serving in self-serving ways. And where does that leave us? Where does that leave the ordinary citizen and the poor, uh, the people that God generally cares the most about? Well, they're kind of excluded, marginalized, are they not in this? Uh, Nothing like that exists in this uh, Silicon Valley, of course, not a hint. Well, I I hate to really know, because I expect expect there's plenty there. Now he says um, about the the leadership in, in, in the... Israel in his day the best of them is like a briar a big sharp thorn that means that you go to one of these leaders and you ask for uh, for help or you ask uh, uh, something legitimate and it's like sticking your thumb in a big thorn are you going to get help out of this guy no he's like a briar Uh, the most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge I don't know if you've ever seen big thorn hedges briar rabbit kind of thing where you just it's this total thorn bushes we don't have them around here in California but they, there is such a thing um, now uh, is he talking about the days in which he lives well yes he probably is to some extent he probably sees some of these things in his own time we're at the time when the Assyrians have uh, taken the ten northern tribes off into captivity in Assyria and the even the cities in Judah are being raided by the Assyrians and meanwhile Babylon is on the ascendancy and will soon come in and carry uh, the southern tribes off into Babylon Uh, for 70 years it's God's judgment on his own people as chastisement on his own people Uh, if you want to see something of the the, the heavy heart of the prophet Habakkuk wrote during this time, time period and and he was greatly distressed when he knew the land was about to be uh, ruined and that men more evil than the, than the Jews by far, more cruel and more violent, were going to come in as God's chastening instrument against people of Israel. And it, it, it broke his heart and left him for a time without hope. Micah feels that sort of way. The Micah does say at the end of verse 4, The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now is the time of their confusion. So he does, he sees here that the uh, evil in the world will eventually be judged by God and it's not going to go on forever and, and it's a little hard to wait for that to all happen, but, it, but it's inevitable. God does deal with evil. He's just a little slow about that, a little pokey. Doesn't deal with things on our time scale often and sometimes God's time scale is many centuries. So there's a... a, a, a a note here of sadness and sorrow in Micah. And he has a, a broken and tender heart for his people and for the situation in which he lives. And does he have any other people that he can go talk to and that, that will encourage him? 
Well, he might have known Isaiah. He doesn't have a fellowship group. <laughs> he doesn't have any friends that are like-minded. That he he's kind of feels all alone, like he's the only one. Well, he's not the only one, but people are rare. Now, he goes on to talk more about the times in which he lives. He says, don't trust in a friend. Don't put your confidence in a companion. Don't even trust your best friend. Don't even trust the people that you work with around you. Uh, Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. Don't even confide in your spouse. Now that's a terrible thing. Your spouse is supposed to be the person that you have the most intimate, personal, trusting relationship with, who you can talk to about everything and, and get good advice and and good wisdom from. And what what is it like when you can't trust your spouse? That happens, for example, if one of the members of a family is carrying on a relationship on the side, say, for example, which is not uncommon in our day. Well, that just totally destroys the fabric of a holy relationship and it makes you distrust the person that you loved and married well that's going on the son dishonors the father none of that in our culture at all ever daughter rises against her mother daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law a man's enemies are the men of his own house those words are vaguely familiar anybody heard them before or seen them before anywhere yes Matthew chapter 10 uh, and, and, and Jesus describing the conditions in Israel that are going to come to pass in the days ahead so that's where Jesus lifted that quote it's also in Luke now we, we've got all this bad news so far okay it's gloom and doom and a lot of Micah is like this and then it turns right around and and uh, as usual uh, what does Micah say about all this is he discouraged and bummed out and depressed and is he run around dumping on all of his friends and looking for uh, some kind of comfort or hitting the bottle or, or dropping out or getting bitter and cynical no he doesn't he says uh, but as for me I will look to the Lord I will wait for the salvation of my, for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. There's the place to put your faith and hope, uh, particularly when things are dark around on all sides. And when you feel totally alone, what do you do? Put your, renew your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your confidence in God, uh, in his ability to take care of you and to, to unravel all of the complicated problems in the world and to vindicate you so that's that's exactly how Habakkuk ends Habakkuk says uh, it's going to get worse around here but I'm going to hang in with the Lord I'm not going to stop depending on him I will wait for the God of my salvation waiting on waiting for God's sometimes very difficult do not rejoice over me my enemy says Micah when I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I may uh, be disgraced and humiliated, and I may be very unpopular through the rest of my life, and I may have people laughing at me and ridiculing me. Am I going to let that get me down? No. Uh, that's a pretty normal reaction to the prophets. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. 
because I have sinned against him. Does Micah is one of the most godly men in the whole country. Has Micah sinned against God? Well, yes, everybody has. Is he here identifying with the people? Very strongly so. Or he could say, we have sinned, but he takes it as if it's I have sinned. Uh, and, and I can only wait for God's grace and mercy. Uh, have you ever have you ever noticed that when that when you are close to God is when you feel the most sinful? You ever notice that? That if you're all comfortable because God's saved me now and all my sins are forgiven and everything's really going well, that's probably a, not a good place to be for very long. Uh, the closer we get to God, the more we see our own desperate need. There's no good in me at all. We are all an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags and it, and it sinks in. And what are the people that you're, what are your fellow believers? Are they really any better off at the core of their being? Well, not really. I mean, we're new and we're clean, but motives and all kinds of stuff. What are we, are we waiting? Are we waiting for some vindication and deliverance? We have it, see it much more clearly than Micah did who lived before the cross. And what is Micah waiting for? He is waiting for God to plead his case, plead Micah's case, and execute justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I will see his righteousness. Do you have that hope of personal salvation and vindication and justification? Yes, indeed. That's where to, where to look. Even though the world is all dark and gloomy, and you're all too keenly aware of your own failures and your own shortcomings, can you put your hope that the God of love who gave himself for you will vindicate you, will solve the problem, uh, not only for you, but for all of us? That's where Micah is. It is. That's what he's telling us about. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mire in the streets. Now, who in the world is she? Is that a literal lady? No, probably not. Got any thoughts on this? Why it would be the personal pronoun would be a she here? The world. I think so. I think that's exactly right. In Isaiah, we had um, uh, Mystery Babylon personified as the seducing woman. Is the world not like a seductress? Does not, the world not constantly make its appeals to us to indulge, to have pleasure, to look for power? Isn't that the, the, the kind of what temptation's like for all of us? Yeah. Uh, Ray Stanley distinguishes between sin, no S. And then sins, as and he said the sins means they are really observed or something that you do in the deeds and and the original sin is separation from God. Mm-hmm. So do I, if I repent, do I have to repent my original sin as well as the other sins? <laughs> well, we're going to see a little. With how how much do you have to deal with your old sins? Uh, you certainly don't have to deal with them over and over and over again if, if you've asked God for forgiveness you've got it but we'll get a little bit more uh, as this letter closes here um, 
all all our lives long as Christians, we are assaulted by the lure, the uh, the lures of the world that that attract us and get us to compromise and compromise with God and go looking for money, power, love, pleasure, happiness, whatever. It's, does the world not assault us like that all the time? Yes, it does. Okay, that's what he's saying, and he's saying there's coming a time when this seducing woman of the world is going to not be there. It's going to be destroyed. Trampled down like mire in the street. The world is also saying there is no God. And the world today says there is no God, and you get all kinds of books and movies out that will try to convince you in a logical way that God, there is no God at all. And if there is a God, he's uninvolved. Uh, God might have started the universe going, but he certainly doesn't bother himself to get into the affairs of men now. And uh, if there is a God, well, it's probably uh, some kind of amalgamation. It's a, God's a little bit like Allah and something like Buddha and maybe Jesus a little bit, but it's kind of an all-purpose God. Uh, not so. God is very specifically holy and just and righteous, and that's the message of the prophets. Now, we've got now a, a marvelous little epic epilogue on here uh, in which Micah says in the day when your walls are to be built in the day the decree shall in that day the decree shall go far and wide in that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities from the fortress to the river from sea to sea and mountain to mountain yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for fruit, for the fruit of their deeds. Now, he's talking about a day in which Jerusalem will be rebuilt and inhabited, but then he goes on to talk about invading armies, here represented by Assyria, and the land being laid waste and desolated by foreign armies. Now, has that happened to Israel? Yeah, that's Assyrians. Babylonians, Romans, Greeks, Persians. Uh, is there more to come? Yeah, there's more to come. There's going to be a great, a great world war in the Middle East, and, and the armies of the king of the north will come swooping down on Israel and plunder and destroy the city. Zechariah says the city will be taken and the women ravished and, and the city plundered and set afire. And the Egyptians will come swarming in, and the Arabs will come swarming in, and a terrible war will will wage up and down the land of Israel, with millions dying in that great war, terrible war, and it's right in the very middle of Israel, a little tiny Israel, and laying the land desolate, and laying it. Desolate. Is that the end? It's not the end, because immediately in verse fourteen. Micah calls out in prayer to God as the shepherd. Now, three times in this little short book of Micah, Micah has talked about the great shepherd of the sheep and how God is a loving, caring shepherd. Fits very well the agricultural economy of that area where sheep and goats and farming is the sustenance of the way of life. Shepherd your people with this, with your staff, the flock of your heritage. 
So it's a call here for the great shepherd to come to restore his flock, Israel, and to make the whole land green and lush again so that sheep can graze. We've got the grazing and green pastures in the next verse. The flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead. Carmel is up in the north and rich and green, Mount Carmel, and Bashan is the Golan Heights, and Gilead's over in Jordan. Uh, rich, wonderful land for sheep to graze safely and peacefully in, in a land that had previously been desolated. And would the shepherd come back and bring that about? Well, yes, he will, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So what is Micah asking God to do for beleaguered Israel? To act on their behalf as he acted when he brought them out of Egypt. To act uh, strategically, powerfully, uh, irreversibly in, uh, on behalf of his people against all odds. So then the final restoration of Israel will be very much like uh, the people coming into the promised land the first time. When Jesus returns to Jerusalem... Uh, and comes to the Mount of Olives with blood spattered on his garments, where will he have just come from? Basra. He'll just have come with a godly remnant from Petra in southern Jordan, like a great shepherd. Remember we had earlier in this book, the one who breaks out, the one who breaks the sheep out of their enclosure and leads them. Had that beautiful picture in there. And the shepherd then brings his people back into the land of Israel and restores it and that's the second coming of Christ and then he gathers all the nations together and and judges all of them so uh, Micah is looking for a time when God will act as he acted in the exodus uh, in a dramatic way to, to rescue the people of Israel and restore them as it as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt I will show them marvelous things and the reaction of the nations all the powerful nations who now oppose Israel now and more so at the end of the age the nations will see and be ashamed of all their might they will put their hand over their mouth their ears shall be deaf they shall lick the dust like a serpent they shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth they shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you, Israel. How's that for a total turning the whole wide world upside down? That little tiny beleaguered Israel, uh, insignificant nation over there should end up the chief among the nations and all of the other nations of the world, these wild, unruly Gentiles should be radically humbled and come to serve the Jews in Jerusalem. It's totally upside down. And they look at the humiliation of the uh, nations here. And what about this allusion to a, a serpent in the dust? What's behind all the unrest in the world and all the violence and all the hatred and murder in the world? Well, that old serpent from the garden. That's, that's what's behind all of the raging of the nations. And uh, for, for people to respect the Jews as never before, instead of being opposed to them, that, that's really new. That's new. Now, we get, we get Micah's 
uh, conclusion here. Who is like uh, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Hesed. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy, Hesed, to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Now, we started this study a long time ago in Micah by looking at the name, what the name Micah means. Who is like God? So this is Micah speaking, and he says, who is, who is like God? So this book is the sort of secret of godliness, as Ray Stedman likes to say. It's kind of the secret of what it's like to be godly. And Micah has proven himself godly or godlike in what he's written here. And then he goes on to tell us a little bit about what God is like. The God that he knows and serves is a God who pardons iniquity and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. How, God, how lavish is God's mercy? How much mercy do you need? How much grace do you need? How much help do you need? It's there. That's the whole idea. As much as you need. And he does not retain his anger forever. Does God get angry with his people? Uh, yes. Does he uh, get angry uh, real easily like your dad did or your grandfather or great uncle who drank too much anyway? <laughs> Temper tantrums, does God get angry like that? Flare up and suddenly get irritated? No. It takes a long time to provoke God to anger because he knows what's going on and he's loving and he's patient and he waits in fact God waits so long before he gets angry that a lot of people think that, it, that he's not just at all because if God was just God he would have come in and fixed this a long time ago or solved that a long time ago or punished so and so or vindicated me and I'm still waiting but that's what God's like he does not retain his anger he delights in mercy now that's also the theme of the book of Lamentations that God much prefers mercy he does very reluctant to judge. He's very reluctant to chasten. He only chastens people when everything else fails. How long is it? How long has God's patience lasted with Israel? Well, it's uh, uh, 700 uh, BC when Micah is writing this. That's about uh, 800 years after the Exodus or so, and uh, Abraham lived about 2,200. So it's quite a bit later than Abraham so there's a long long time spell there uh, we tend to operate on time scales of, of a, a day or a week or a few years or something when everything fixed right away how long is it taking God to fix Israel taking a long time but uh, with, but for it's not a long time in God's scale and he delights in mercy he prefers mercy he prefers mercy to judgment he will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our iniquities they talk about the remnant here Micah is saying we the small little remnant and I'm part of the remnant will receive mercy and then there's this wonderful memory verse where God promises that he will cast 
all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Now that means gets rid of your sins forever and erases the memory and throws away the hard drive and the disks and everything. And uh, it's also what uh, is that Isaiah, as far as the east is from the west, so thus far has he removed our transgressions from us. So that's the God who, when he deals with our sin, deals with it 100%, forgives it, forgets it, doesn't bring it up again. Well, that that means that, that if God has forgiven you and you've given something to God, then you don't need to bring it up again. You don't need to go review those old sins and air them all over again. In fact, that's kind of offensive to God. You ask for his forgiveness, he forgave you, forget it. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to review things occasionally in the past and look over uh, relationships and, and review them before the Lord. That's true. And what is he going to do for Israel's long record, long track record of failure? He's going to write it all up because all of that sin has been paid for in full. It's all, all of your sins have been paid for in full and so God's really really not interested in sin because that's already dealt with he's got that all solved what's he want is restored relationships what's he want he wants to be merciful he wants intimacy he wants to know you he hates hypocrisy he hates phoniness he hates people who are just merely religious this is a God who's a great lover and a great intimate and that's what he's after and what, what, can you imagine what happens to an unbeliever who dies and faces Jesus face to face for his interview and um, Jesus talks to this particular sinner and what do you suppose the first question will be? How come you wouldn't let me forgive you? Uh, I went to a great trouble to die for your sins and uh, apparently that meant nothing to you. Apparently you don't realize what I made possible for you. I made possible uh, the forgiveness of all your sins and a whole brand new life and, uh, and freedom and liberty and you said no to that what in the world would a sinner say to that and then with great reluctance Jesus has to say to that person uh, well I'm really sorry if you don't want my solution to your problems you're just going to have to go away and handle the problem of God's justice and your sinfulness and pay for it yourself that take a long time and it's not going to be fun but that you've made your choice so uh, I, I like to think about God it's good to think about that that the sin issue is really dealt with and the issue is here is all about relationships and in a future day uh, all this will be realized Israel will be brought up to the chief among all the nations and put into uh, uh, the place of prominence in the world uh, in, in regard to we've also had here yet in Micah some clear predictions about, about Bible prophecy this is a book on prophecy we've had four or five announcements of the Messiah and what he's going to be like and when he comes and we've seen again the patterns of uh, chastisement and how prophecy centers around Israel and I have some notes in my old Bible here from Ray uh, that are just really helpful what determines the future is what God has done in the past and what he has promised to do in the future. So don't look horizontally at current events. Is that good advice? 
you get look horizontally uh, at the Middle East, at the world situation, and you look at you try to figure it out. How Lindsay style or somebody like that, you try to figure it out and analyze it and package it up in a bestseller, and it usually is gets totally wrong. So what do we do? We look to see what has God done in the past. What has He promised that He will do? Will He do what He said He will do? Will He do it in exacting detail? Yes, He most certainly will. Now the other thing that that Ray Stedman in his little summary of Micah says this about Micah, about this whole book because the name Micah who is like God. What is the way to God likeness? Putting away our wickedness, confessing our guilt before God, looking to him to pardon our iniquities and cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Isn't that just what the New Testament says? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 9. Now, how do you walk humbly with God? John answers that we should walk in the light as he is in the light. Uh, That is to walk openly and in honesty. Do not try to hide anything from God. Do not pretend to be something you are not to him. Walk in the light as he is in the light, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Now, Micah's question rings in our ears. Who is like God? Well, the only one who is like God is the man who walks with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself, the God-like one. That sort of sums up this whole book, isn't it? The secret of godliness is to live in an intimate relationship with the man who is God, who alone is God-like, who alone is righteousness. You see what the message that Micah leaves, leaves us with here. Neat little book, isn't it? Any thoughts, comments, questions? <laughs> I didn't write it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great little book. Okay, I very much appreciate this awesome group, uh, and it forces me to read the Bible and study it a little bit. And I, I, God willing, we can do something more in the. Should the Lord tarry? I think one point you make, which is excellent, is you start walking with the Lord, and then invariably all of us have a sin or two, which is just hard to get rid of, it seems like. So you, you just constantly feel like a failure, and you, but we can't be that way. We confess it and move on, because we know that God knows who we are, and, um, and we keep praying for him to take that from us. But I think a lot of us go around just defeated all the time, because how can God love me? I keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. And it really kind of gets you down when you, we shouldn't be, be in that place. Look at, these, look at these incredible promises that God says uh, that he's going to totally wipe out all of the sins and all of the charges against us and all of the charges our enemies have made and every item that's come up against us is going to be eradicated. The New Testament makes the fact that it's already happened. Just because he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. But 
how that it's a it's a oxymoron in my brain somehow that he could forget all that. No, that, he's willing to do that. I, it's, it's, it's incredible. I've just been thinking this week about how awesome and amazing and wonderful God is as a person, as a personal God. This amazing God that we know and worship and love and uh, just sort of sends chills up. I was reading in John's Gospel last night uh, one of the dis- discussions that Jesus was having with the crowd and I thought, I know that same Jesus. That's absolutely incredible. If I walked up to Jesus in Jerusalem on the street, he'd know me and we'd know each other and I know that guy and I'm on a part of his team. The What does God want out of you in the meantime? He wants faith. That's what Habakkuk came to the conclusion. Is he wants your trust. He wants you to obey him, to act uh, on his promises, whether you feel like it or not, in spite of your circumstances, in spite of these besetting sins. You don't have to get your act together and then think about serving God. You can serve God right now. And in the end, we're all going to get to heaven and be whole and complete and godlike. I think our, our biggest problem is that we just don't believe that. Well, unbelief is, at the, of course, at the heart of the human problem is here's God's given us this book, all full of these marvelous promises, uh, a lot of which we don't take very seriously. Oh, that's all very well and good. Uh, and that gives me a little encouragement, but do we really believe it? Well, unbelief is, runs deep in us. Well, if we all become complete in heaven, then why do we still need to grow here on earth? Well, <laughs> if we're going to be complete in heaven when we get there, then why do we need to grow now? Well, heaven's a pretty radically different place than earth. This is uh, in our present state, we can't handle all that intensity very well. I think that the answer that we, that's a huge change, bright light, and unselfish, loving, caring people, and uh, holiness this everywhere. Uh, and, and C.S. Lewis points out that it's no wonder that unbelievers don't want to go there <laughs> and, because they can't go on being selfish anymore. <laughs> Really, in answer to your question, though, that it, it, it's common for us to ask that question because we don't understand who God is. You, you make it sound like it's a bad thing to grow. Uh, yeah. It can be painful at times, but it's really the best thing for us to grow uh, and, and to learn who God really is. And, and that, you know, the more we find out who God is, the more wonderful we see that He is, and the more we want more and more of that. What does God want out of you? He wants you to be a whole man, a whole woman. Leviticus, remember? He'd like to unfold all of your potentials, all of your talents and abilities, stretch you out till you, till you are the person that he created you to be, unlock all the, the areas of your life that are inaccessible and closed and develop them so that you become the person that he intended. We are uh, God's. Uh, we're, we're God's Israel right now in this world. We're, that's all God's got to represent Him as us. Yeah. Uh, and answer your question. It's, it's like the old story. Michelangelo saw a block of marble, and he saw David in there, and that's what God sees us as a block. Mm-hmm. He's chiseling away. He's making. He's and more. It's that same analogy. He's molding us into this. 
So if we have a lot of corners on us, we haven't got very far enough. <laughs> what do you do with a crack? <laughs> with the, if the big slime of marble's got a crack running through it. What do you do? <laughs> anyway, let's quit, shall we? Father, thanks uh, for this study and uh, for everybody that's gathered here. And who is like you, Lord? That's uh, we would, would we really try to understand that, that we can't ever fully, but would that be what our lives are about, and that we'd understand how you pardon our sins, you pass them over, and that you don't stay angry, Lord? Would we really understand what that means? Uh, and give us your same unchanging love, Father. Um, thank you so much for the love that you've shown to us, and as always, we pray that that would flow uh, from our lives to those around us, that we would be a fragrance of life to many. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.